and of his many contributions to our community. We would like to dedicate this broadcast to the memory of Guy Dotson, Jr. I will now turn the microphone over to District Attorney General Jennings Jones. Jennings, can you tell us a little bit more about this outstanding individual and this loss to the community? Paul, uh, Guy Dotson, Jr., and I, I've known him for a long time. He and I tried a whole lot of trials together, and he was an absolutely fearless attorney. Uh, I admired him. He always knew the law. He was never afraid to go to trial. Uh, He represented his clients well. Uh, And, you know, I always always admired him. He, uh, He never did anything that I would call underhanded. He was always very much above board. Uh, he would represent his clients extremely well. He did a great job of it. Uh, it made sure that their rights were preserved. Uh, something that uh, I, I really admire and find to be a, a real uh, aspect of a good attorney. Uh, and, you know, he will be very much missed by the office. Um, I've, I've prayed for his family. Uh, the, the whole Dotson family has had a rough go here in the past several months. And, and uh, I just pray that God will bless them. So we will miss Guy Jr., uh, and uh, I'd ask that everybody just keep him in his thoughts. Guy came from a wonderful family, and he was a wonderful family man. We will welcome now everyone to the program. My name is J. Paul Newman. My co-host today is Rutherford County District Attorney General Jennings Jones. We thank WGNS for providing the airtime. And we thank our producer, Nick Cohen. Most of all, we thank you for listening. In our Inside the Court segment, Jennings Jones will tell you about recent and upcoming grand general sessions and circuit court activity. In our Call to Conviction segment, we will highlight a case from March of 2017. It is the murder of 29-year-old Carly Hassett. In our cold case profile segment, we will be asking for your help in solving a mystery. It is the January 1980 murder of retired Christiana Postmaster Fred Wiggs. But first, in our What's the Law segment, former District Attorney General Bill Weitzel will discuss an area of the law that you will find to be both interesting and educational. It is the law regarding the death penalty. During Bill's death penalty discussion, he will highlight several cases, cases where the death penalty was sought in Rutherford County. Those cases are the 1995 murder of 72-year-old Charlotte Lottie Scott. In that case, Ricky Bryan was charged and convicted of first-degree murder. Bill will also talk about the murder of old Charlie's restaurant manager, Nader Bamanziari. Nader Bonanziari was killed during the robbery of the Memorial Avenue Old Charlie's in February of 2008. The person who was charged and convicted of that murder was Antonio Alexander. And Bill will also discuss the July 2000 murders of three Smyrna Captain D's employees. Those three employees were Captain D's manager, Scott Myers, Captain D's assistant manager, Brian Spite, an 18-year-old Captain D's employee, and Laverne High School student, Troy Snell. In that case, both LaTanya Taylor 
and Percy Palmer were charged and convicted of three counts of first-degree murder. We will begin the broadcast after you listen to these important messages. The Habitat Restore is your home for fresh. Check the Habitat's collection of sofas, chairs, coffee tables, desks, and more, all at a savings of 30 to 70% of retail pricing. And if you're making renovations, don't throw away cabinets, appliances, and more. Call the Habitat Restore, and they'll pick up your donation. Visit the Habitat Restore today. We're located at 850 Mercury Boulevard, open 9 to 6, Monday through Saturday. Enjoy the new fresh. Before we get into our next segment, I would just like to remind everybody from a message our friends over at Mapco, how do you feel about two for three laser Cheetos? About regular M&Ms for only a dollar? These are just a handful of sweet deals you can find right now over at Mapco. You'll be surprised at how they always have great deals for your everyday cravings. Don't forget to download their My Rewards mobile app to earn points to use towards items like ice-cold fountain drinks or even fuel. The app is available for iPhones and Androids, so stop by and save at your local Mapco today. And now for the next segment, What's the Law? What's the Law? Time now for an examination of the laws of Tennessee. This is not intended to be legal advice and is being presented solely for the informational benefit of our listening audience. You should always consult with an attorney whenever you need or rely on legal advice. Uh, Paul, uh, I wanted to uh, talk this morning about uh, uh, seeking the death penalty in a first-degree murder case. Uh, many times, as you know, when we meet with a victim's family, they they want to know, are you going to ask for the death penalty? Uh, and when I go out and speak to the public, they want, they want to know why this case is a death penalty case and this case may not be. And the, the decision to seek the death penalty is one that is guided by the statutory framework uh, of our law. In the state of Tennessee, the only murder that qualifies is first-degree murder, that is, one that's intentional and premeditated, that the defendant formed the intent to kill sometime prior to the act of murder in their mind. And in order to seek the death penalty, the state is obligated to have what we call a statutory aggravating circumstance. And there are 17 aggravating circumstances listed in our first-degree murder uh, statute. I won't go over uh, all of them, but I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, one would be that the defendant uh, has a prior record uh, involving a conviction for a crime whose elements involve violence. Uh, another one is that the defendant committed mass murder. In other words, that he killed three or more persons, whether committed in one single criminal episode or at different times. Another one, the defendant knowingly mutilated the body of a victim. Uh, the murder of a child under the age of 12. That uh, the murder was committed in the course of an act of terrorism. Uh, and then finally another example, the murder was committed as a result of the defendant's substantial participation in some other crime, such as an aggravated robbery, aggravated child abuse. So the state is obligated to review the facts of the case 
and see if there is proof of a statutory aggravating circumstance. And as you're aware, even if we find that one of those exists, for example, let's say that we have a defendant who had a prior conviction for an aggravated assault, which would be a crime involving violence, we still have to look at other factors. Number one, how strong is the case? How strong is is the evidence? Uh, that's something that we consider. And then, in order for a jury to return a verdict of, of uh, and sentence a defendant to death, they must find not only that we have proven a statutory aggravating circumstance beyond a reasonable doubt, but that that circumstance, circumstance outweighs in a, any mitigating circumstances that uh, apply to the defendant. And, and those, we have some statutory mitigating circumstances, uh, such as no significant history of, of prior criminal activity, uh, that the defendant uh, was of uh, youth or of young age, or maybe that they were of an advanced age. I noticed that we had, I read in the paper about a case in Georgia where an Alzheimer's uh, person had killed somebody, so certainly the mental condition of a person may come into play. Uh, so, so the defendant's history, medical history, childhood, all of that becomes relevant uh, in, dis in a jury's decision as to whether uh, to impose the death penalty, and it's also relevant when we as a office look at the case to determine whether uh, we will ask for the death penalty. In the course of my career, uh, I can remember being involved in three death penalty trials, uh, one in the mid-'80s and then two since uh, I've been in uh, the district attorney, and both you and I participated in those cases. Both of them coincidentally happened to involve uh, restaurant robberies. Uh, but in my career, there has never been a death penalty verdict in Rutherford County. Now. Uh, we get information about what, how the jury voted, and we know in, bo in both of the cases, one in one, the vote was 10 to 2 for the death penalty that I'm aware of, and another one is 11 to 1 in favor of the death penalty. So uh, we've come close, but it's very difficult. It's, uh, it's a situation that uh, jurors look very closely at the evidence. It's easy to talk about sentencing somebody to death, but we found it's hard for somebody to do. When you were going over some of the aggravating circumstances, which are, are things you've got to prove in order to seek the death penalty, you, you talked about the age of the victim, and I want to particularly ask you about the elderly, and if you recall, and I know you do, the case of Lottie uh, Scott, uh, in which Ricky Bryan was charged uh, and convicted of the murder of Lottie Scott. And I believe that was one of the aggravating circumstances that was passed as a result of that case. Am I correct in that? That is correct, and I believe at the time that bill was introduced in the legislature and ultimately passed, it was known as Lottie's Law. Uh, it was named after the victim in our case here in Rutherford County. And that aggravating circumstance is that the victim of the murder was 70 years of age or older, or the victim of the murder was particularly vulnerable due to a significant disability whether mental or physical, and at the time of the murder, the defendant knew or should have known of such disability. So in that case, uh, uh, as you mentioned, she was in excess of 70 years. And in addition to that, uh, 
the defendant knowingly mutilated her body, which is another aggravating circumstance that is listed as a result of that, I believe. Okay. Uh, in the case, it's the O'Charlie's case, uh, Mr. Alexander had uh, previous convictions for uh, armed robbery and robbery. And so uh, that, that provided us with a aggravated aggravating circumstance because he had been previously convicted of a crime that involved violence. So, so that gave us a starting point. And then we look at the other um, circumstances, and as uh, Detective Abbott discussed, there were other people that were present in the restaurant, and in particular in the small office, and uh, another aggravating circumstance is that he created a risk of death to two or more persons. Of course, we had uh, uh, the deceased, and then there were two other individuals in the office and also other individuals that were in the kitchen area at the time. And you mentioned the reckless endangerment aspect, and that was the basis of that charge. But that also gave us another uh, aggravating circumstance. And uh, then one we frequently uh, have tried or used is that the murder was committed with the intent of avoiding or interfering with uh, lawful arrest or prosecution. So, so in this particular case, we had those aggravating circumstances uh, that would justify us in seeking the death penalty. Generally in, in our office, as you're aware, I will sit down with the assistant or assistants that are involved in the case. We will discuss that uh, to make sure we have a legal basis then we always uh, like to sit and discuss the case with the family or the family members. And we like to uh, try to educate them on the law. Uh, we like to uh, tell them what we believe we may have in the way of aggravating circumstances that would justify seeking uh, the death penalty. And we also like to get their input as to how they feel about that. And the reason, or the reason that over the years I've done it that way is because a capital case is not like anything else. Uh, all cases involve a journey. All homicide cases involve a, a journey. But in a death penalty case, it's more like an obstacle course. Uh, the, the case uh, will get uh, heightened due process concerns. Uh, there are many more motions. Uh, there are other areas that involve the uh, punishment phase of the case that we, we have to look at. And so you have to prepare a family uh, to go on this journey with you. Uh, and as you know, it's very important. Uh, we, we want to be uh, sympathetic with the, with the concerns of the family. So we did that in this case. And uh, ultimately, the decision, uh, even, even and, and as I recall, maybe the victim's wife was not a person that favored capital punishment. But ultimately, that decision falls to uh, the district attorney in this, in this case, in all cases, of course, after consulting with uh, the office team members and also the family. And knowing Mr. Alexander's history, uh, we decided to seek the death penalty because he had a history of, of violent robberies. Uh, and and that, was, uh, that was the situation in this case. 
And, and as you're aware, it took us a couple of years, maybe a little over that, to get the case to trial after all the pretrial motions. Uh, also, when we're making these types of decisions, we look at the individual defendant to see if, if this defendant and this case uh, indeed is one of the worst of the worst. Uh, Mr. Alexander was, was not a kid. Uh, he, was, he was a middle-aged person. Uh, he had a criminal history. Uh, he, he had no mental defense that, w that we were aware of. Uh, we, we didn't know of any mitigating circumstances. Uh, it was without a doubt an unnecessary and cold-blooded murder simply based on greed. And uh, in addition to that, uh, he endangered the lives of others. So we decided to seek the death penalty in this particular case. The other case that comes to mind, very similar to this, in fact, was the Captain D's uh, homicide, triple homicide case in Smyrna. And uh, in that case, we also uh, sought the death penalty, and that was because uh, one of the aggravating circumstances was that it involved mass murder. Uh, two or more, three persons were killed down there, two or more persons. So that was an aggravating circumstance. It, it was uh, in the commission of a, of, a, of a robbery or a felony. That's an aggravating circumstance. Uh, it, it was planned, and, and we just felt like in that case uh, that that was another case that merited uh, seeking the ultimate penalty. Uh, I can tell you uh, that it's always a difficult decision. Uh, I, I think in our office we, we are very serious about it. And uh, when, you, when you make the decision to seek the death penalty and go forward with it, frankly, it weighs, weighs heavy on, on your shoulders, uh, my shoulders, or, or whoever's prosecuting the case because we know what's at stake for both sides. And uh, so it, it's not something that we do lightly. Um, in my time in the office, uh, I can recall either four or five times, I believe, that we've asked for the death penalty, and we've never, we've never gotten the death penalty. Uh, in the Captain D's case, that jury was from Chattanooga. Uh, in, in our case, uh, the uh, O'Charlie's case, uh, it, was, it was a local jury. Uh, so you can't say it's just because it's Rutherford County. Uh, I don't know what it is, but I can tell you that uh, I have the utmost respect for jurors that are ultimately seated. I, I don't know of anybody that uh, likes to be in that position. They take it very seriously. Uh, we do have the opportunity after the case is over to go back and poll the jury or talk with them to see, to, to see uh, what was on their mind. And we know that in both of the cases that I've just discussed, we were one or two votes away both times. Uh, and I can only speculate, but I thought in Mr. Alexander's case, the fact that he had a young son uh, probably weighed heavily with the jury and spared his life. As you mentioned, he'll never get out of prison. Uh, he, he'll spend the rest of his life in prison. I've known Mr. Alexander personally a long, long time. Uh, we met at the courthouse, and we said goodbye at the courthouse. Uh, but that was the life that he chose, and... Uh, it, it was nothing personal with him. It was something that was fact-based, based on his history and the law. Uh, so uh, I, I would like to 
say that uh, I hope I never have another one. I would like to say that I hope any future district attorneys in Rutherford County never has to make the decision of whether or not to seek the death penalty, but I know that won't be the case, unfortunately. Well, Bill, I know that you have always done a wonderful job on evaluating these cases, <clears throat> and I wonder, I know you got the statute to go by, but how important is it to you as far as the strength of the evidence in the case in deciding whether or not this is a case that we should seek the death penalty? Well, uh, as you know, Paul, uh, you, 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 you've got to get to step number one. You've got to prove that the defendant's guilty before you ever uh, get to the penalty phase in a homicide case or a first-degree murder case. And uh, we, we want to be sure. Uh, we want to have very strong evidence. The last thing that, that, any, that I want to do is go to trial and ask for the death penalty on a case where there's, uh, you're, you're just not sure. Uh, we want to be not only sure, we want to have a very, very strong case before we ask for the ultimate punishment because we know that those jurors, and I don't mean this in, a, in an ugly way, but a lot of times they're looking for a way out, and they don't want to make that decision, and if you have a weak case, uh, you might risk uh, getting a conviction if you uh, put that ultimate punishment out there. But we've always uh, uh, used as a standard that we have a very strong case. And in the uh, O. Charlie's case, because of uh, the work of the Murfreesboro Police Department, Detectives Singleton and Abbott and other detectives, we had a very strong case, a very strong uh, evidentiary case, uh, we had uh, a tremendous amount of evidence. We had the murder weapon. Uh, we had other as footprint evidence. We, as I recall, we had a videotape from a neighboring business that actually uh, showed uh, Mr. Alexander coming into the restaurant with a with a hostage, so to speak, uh, and, and the clothing that we had, the the uh, other witnesses. So it was a very very strong case. We were very confident that we would get a conviction. Uh, I don't, it's always, uh, you, you don't count your chickens before they hatch, but we felt like we would get a conviction. So it was the appropriate type of case we look forward to go forward then and seek the death penalty. When we return, Jennings Jones will take us inside the courts. At Bud's Tire Pros, they care about those who live and work here because you're a big part of what makes this place great. This is Kay Mitchell at Bud's Tire. Come by and see us at Bud's Tire, 3600 East Main Street, or call 896-TIRE. They will be here through the good times and the uncertain times. For those who are out on the road, stop in today to see their full lineup of Michelin tires. For whatever you drive, Michelin has a tire to fit any need. Bud's Tire Pros, they're essential. They're open. They're local. Visit them online at BudsTireProsTN.com. This is Inside the Courts. A look at this month's trials, pleas, and grand jury action. Inside the Courts is presented as a courtesy of the Rutherford County Clerk's Office. Good morning, everyone. This is your District Attorney, Jennings Jones. And in this segment, I will be your tour guide as I take you inside the courts. We begin this segment by stating that none of the defendants named in upcoming trials or hearings have been convicted. And, of course, they are presumed by our law to be innocent. With that said, we will now go inside the courts. The July Grand Jury is back in session. 
We'll rephrase that. We've got the grand jury back in session after the pandemic. We're moving cases on through the court system. The July grand jury returned 107 indictments. Those indictments included four counts of felony theft, four, two for burglary, one aggravated robbery, seven for aggravated assault, two for vehicular homicide, and 19 counts of felony drugs. On May the 15th, 2018, a citizen called 911 and told the dispatcher that a man was sitting in the middle of the roadway at West Main Street and Bridge Avenue. According to the citizen, the man in the street was saying that he had shot someone. The Murfreesboro Police Department quickly responded to the location, but before the police arrived, the man got up and ran away. The fleeing man was later apprehended and identified as 27-year-old Brandon Robichaud. The Murfreesboro Police investigation led them to the in-town suites on Old Fort Parkway. Inside of one of the hotel rooms, the police located the body of 37-year-old Leanna Austin. Leanna Austin had been shot to death. Based on the investigation, Detective Doug Arrington arrested Robichaud and charged him with the murder of Leanna Austin. A trial date of February the 18th, 2020 had been set in this case, but that date has been canceled. At the request of the defense, the trial was postponed pending a mental health evaluation of Brandon Robichaud. That evaluation has now concluded. On September 2nd, Brandon Robichaud is scheduled to appear again in the courtroom of Judge David Bragg. At that appearance, Brandon Robichaud will have the opportunity to enter into a plea of guilty or set his case for trial. Brandon Robichaud is being represented by the Rutherford County Public Defender Gerald Melton and Assistant Public Defender Caleb McCain. The state is represented by Assistant District Attorneys Trevor Lynch and Dana Minor. Brandon Robichaud remains in custody of the Rutherford County Jail, awaiting his June court appearance. On May the 4th, 2017, the Murfreesboro Police Department began an investigation into the shooting death of Jesse Buford. Buford was shot at the student quarters apartments here in Murfreesboro. The shooting was captured on videotape. On May the 6th, 2017, Detective James Abbott arrested 19-year-old Lamoris Jones in Jackson, Tennessee. Lamoris Jones had a trial scheduled to begin on April the 6th, 2020. However, due to the coronavirus pandemic, the trial was rescheduled. When the case goes to trial, the judge will be the trial will be presided over by Rutherford County Circuit Court Judge David Bragg, and at the trial, Lamoris Jones will be represented by Nashville Attorney Wesley Clark. The state will be represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch and Brent Pierce. Lamoris Jones is scheduled to appear before Circuit Court Judge David Bragg for trial on November 30th of this year. Presently, Lamoris Jones remains in the Rutherford County Jail, unable to make bond. 54-year-old Martin Benito Montemayor is charged with the first-degree murder on March 31, 2019 at approximately 3 a.m. The, Murfres the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to the Montemayor home on the 400 block of Sunset Avenue in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Once inside the home, they discovered the body of Martin Montemayor's wife, 53-year-old Judith Montemayor. Judith Montemayor had been killed by knife wounds that she had suffered at the hands of her assailant. Judith Montemayor was the manager at Donut Country, located on Memorial Boulevard. Following the initial investigation, Murfreesboro Detective Jacob Fountain charged Martin Montemayor with the murder of his wife, Judith Montemayor. Martin Montemayor will be represented by Rutherford County Assistant Public Defender Ben Wetzel. 
and the state will be represented by Assistant District Attorneys Trevor Lynch and Dana Miner. In this case, the state has given notice that if Martin Montmire is convicted of murder, it will be seeking a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Martin Montmire is also being held for a Texas parole violation on two prior murder convictions. Martin Montmire remains in state custody at the Rutherford County Jail, awaiting further court action. On April the 30th, 2018, 17-year-old Yuji Cherubin was shot and killed at a Laverne residence while his two siblings sat with him in his car. According to the Laverne Police Department, Cherubin went to an address in the 2000 block of George Buchanan Drive in Laverne, Tennessee. Cherubin was in the process of attempting to buy an iPhone when he was shot in the face and robbed. Cherubin later died at the local hospital. Within 24 hours, the Laverne Police Department located and charged two juveniles with the murder of Cherubin. Earlier this year, the two juveniles were transferred to the adult court by juvenile court judge Donna Scott Davenport. Now that the two juveniles have been adjudicated to be treated as adults, we can provide their names. They are Brian Berry and Marquise Hughes. On August the 13th, Brian Berry and Marquise Hughes will make an appearance in the courtroom of Judge David Bagg. On that date, this matter is expected to be set for trial. Brian Berry is being represented by Murfreesboro attorney Derek Howard. Marquez Hughes is represented by Assistant Public Defender Ben Wetzel. The state is represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. Brian Berry and Marquise Hughes are currently being held in the Rutherford County Jail, unable to post bond. On August 27th of this year, Tanner Lancaster will appear in the courtroom of Judge David Bragg. On that date, there will be a status date for a pending mental health evaluation. Rutherford County Sheriff's Detective Derek McCullough has charged 25-year-old Tanner Lancaster with the murder of his father, 61-year-old Perry Lancaster. The crime is alleged to have occurred on Friday night, September the 21st, 2018, at the Lancaster home on Brook Run Road in Rutherford County, Tennessee. Tanner Lancaster is represented by Rutherford County Public Defender Ben Wetzel. The state is being represented by Assistant District Attorneys Dana Miner and Trevor Lynch. Currently, Tanner Lancaster is being held at the Rutherford County Jail, unable to make bond. <clears throat> On April 9, 2020, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to a residence on North Rutherford Boulevard after being dispatched to a shooting resulting in the death of Mr. Stephen Lopez, Jr. Mr. Lopez, Jr. was found to have a single gunshot wound to the chest. Detective Richard Presley of the Murfreesboro Police Department was assigned as the lead investigator. Following interviews with the owner of the residence and her son, James Evans III, warrants were issued for the arrest of Mr. Evans III. Mr. Evans has been charged with the second-degree murder of Stephen Lopez, Jr. Mr. Evans has posted a bond and made his initial appearance in the General Sessions Court with counsel. Mr. Evans has waived his right to a preliminary hearing in the General Sessions Court of Rutherford County and is awaiting presentment of this matter to the grand jury. On May 15, 2020, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department were dispatched to Robert Rose Drive in response to a citizen complaint. While on a walk, a Murfreesboro man and his daughter discovered the remains of a deceased male located close to a homeless camp located in Murfreesboro. The victim was later identified as Mr. Gino Harris, age 50. The cause of death was determined to be a homicide, a result of multiple sharp force injuries to the body, 
contributed to by multiple blunt force injuries to the head. Detective Julie Cox of the Murfreesboro Police Department was assigned as lead investigator. Through witness interviews, Mr. Robert Jenkins was developed as a possible suspect in the homicide. After interviewing Mr. Jenkins, he was charged with the first-degree murder of Mr. Harris. Mr. Jenkins has made his initial appearance before the General Sessions Courts of Rutherford County and has a pending court date of August the 11th, 2020. Mr. Jenkins awaits his court date in the custody of the Rutherford County Adult Detention Center. On December the 8th, 2016, Murfreesboro Police located the body of Francisca Gomez Cordero in a wooded area off of Elam Road. Francisca Gomez Cordero was an Hispanic female. Based on their investigation, Murfreesboro detectives have now filed charges against Romulo Hernandez Mayorga. Mayorga has thus far eluded capture. If you have information regarding this case or the whereabouts of Romulo Hernandez Mayorga, please contact Detective Doug Arrington of the Murfreesboro Police Department. The number to call is 615-893-1311. That phone number again is 615-893-1311. And that will conclude today's look inside the courts. Start your weekdays with the early show from 4 to 6 a.m., followed by the Wake Up Crew from 6 to 7.50 on News Radio WGNS. Atlanta Braves baseball is back, and you won't want to miss a single moment of the 2020 season because every game counts big. Hard hit ball at deep right field, heads up in the chop house, gone! Braves baseball on WGNS. Are you tired of constantly spending money on sprays and other things to control mosquitoes around your home? If so, come by Holden Hardware and get the Spartan Mosquito Eradicators. When used properly, the Spartan Mosquito Eradicators will kill up to 95% of the mosquitoes in the covered area for up to 90 days. This year, make mosquito control easier and cheaper. Come by Holden Hardware on the square and get the Spartan Mosquito Eradicators. Well, I'd like to remind everybody, a message from our friends over at Mapco. How do you feel about two-for-three Lay's Cheetos? How about regular M&M's for only a dollar? These are just a handful of sweet deals that you can find right now at Mapco. You'll be surprised at how they have great deals for your everyday cravings. Don't forget to download their My Rewards mobile app to earn points to use towards items like ice-cold fountain drinks or even fuel. The app is available for both iPhones and Androids, so stop by and save at your local Mapco today. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and our next segment will be Call to Conviction. This is Jeff Graham with Tire World. I want to invite you to visit our new off-road department at our Memorial Boulevard location, featuring lift kits, leveling kits, light bars, as well as wheel and tire packages. Just come by and ask for Gator for all your off-road needs. That's Tire World on Memorial Boulevard. From Call to Conviction. Time now for a look back at one of the more intriguing and important cases for this community. From the crime, the investigation, to the prosecution. Our case study today highlights a clear and present danger. A danger that is clear whenever domestic violence exists and firearms are present. For this case study, we go back to March the 1st, 2017. Our location is a home located on Millersburg Road in the Bell Buckle community 
of Rutherford County, Tennessee. The home is shared by 32-year-old Jarrett Parton and his 29-year-old girlfriend, Carly Hassett. And on this day, it was clear that Jarrett Parton and Carly Hassett were having serious ongoing domestic issues and present in the home was a gun. The gun was an illegal sawed-off shotgun. That shotgun should never have been in the home, and especially never in the possession of Jarrett Parton. For Jarrett Parton had several felony convictions, and it was therefore illegal for him to possess any firearm or have it in his home. It was the late afternoon of March the 1st, 2017, that the Rutherford County Sheriff's Office responded to the Millersburg Road in Bellbuckle. Jarrett Parton had just wrecked his truck in a neighbor's yard. Inside of the wrecked vehicle was Carly Hassett. Carly Hassett had been shot and was either dead or dying. Jarrett Parton told the authorities that his girlfriend, Carly Hassett, shot herself in the side. Jarrett Parton provided details regarding the shooting. From the investigation, the Rutherford County Sheriff's Office and the ATF developed information which disputed Jarrett Parton's version of the events regarding the death of Carly Hassett. Investigators learned that the couple had experienced domestic problems for many years and that on the date Carly Hassett died, the couple had just signed a written agreement which evidenced those past problems and set forth in writing each of their promises to do better in the future. The investigators also developed evidence that deeply questioned the credibility of Jarrett Parton. Monica Fan, a paramedic who responded to the scene, told detectives that Jarrett Parton told her that he and Carly Hassett had been arguing and that Carly Hassett shot herself with the shotgun. Monica Fan also said that Parton told her that Carly Hassett shot herself while she was sitting in the truck. Jarrett Parton made other statements that caused concern. When Detective Steve Craig interviewed Jarrett Parton, another issue arose during the interview regarding Jarrett Parton's new version of where the shooting had actually occurred. Parton told Detective Craig that the shooting occurred as the couple was about to go out of the front door of the home to take the shotgun to Carly Hassett's mother's home. Jared Parton told Sergeant Craig that he, as he was approaching the front door that Carly Hassett came from behind him and quickly took the shotgun from his hands and shot herself in the side. The detectives quickly developed proof that strongly contradicted Jarrett Parton's newest version of the shooting, especially regarding where the shooting occurred. Detective Richard Brinkley had completed multiple blood pattern analysis schools. Detective Brinkley determined that the shooting did not occur near the front door, 
but instead occurred in the couple's bedroom. Richard Brinkley believed that blood spatter on the wall of the bedroom, on the ceiling fan, on the bed, and the amount of blood found in the bedroom indicated to him, beyond any reasonable doubt, that the shooting occurred in the couple's bedroom. Brinkley also believed that the blood-stained evidence indicated the direction that Carly Hassett's body traveled after she was shot. The blood direction evidence indicated that Carly Hassett was shot in her bedroom, and she was then moved through the living room, and then out to the front door, and then into the yard, and then finally placed in Jarrett Parton's truck. Additionally, Dr. David Zimmerman, the medical examiner, who performed Carly Hassett's autopsy, determined that based on his autopsy findings, including the location of the wound and the wound's characteristics, that the death of Carly Hassett was not a suicide. It was a homicide. Dr. Zimmerman based his opinion in part because of the victim's small size and short arm length and comparing her arm length to the distance between the end of the shotgun barrel and the trigger, it was his opinion that the victim could not have placed the shotgun in the location that it would have had to been in to create the wound and the wound trajectory that caused the death of Carly Hassett. Based on all of these facts, Detective Sergeant Steve Craig arrested and charged Jarrett Parton with possession of an illegal weapon and with the murder of Carly Hassett. When we return, we will tell you more about the case of the state of Tennessee versus Jarrett Parton. This is Peter Demas, and I invite you to Here at Music World and Drummer's Den, we do our very best to be very price competitive. On most major items, we're matching internet prices and sometimes even better. So if you're looking for great quality at good prices, this is the place to shop. Come by today and join our Play Today music program. We can get you started playing today and ready to go. This is Dave Kivanimi inviting you to come by Music World and Drummer's Den in Murfreesboro across from Indian Hills. The Garden Patch Thrift Shop on Spring Street across from the tall NHC building is an upscale boutique thrift shop. Proceeds from sales benefit Greenhouse Ministries, a faith-based nonprofit serving the underserved here in Murfreesboro. The Garden Patch offers competitive prices on name-brand clothing, furniture, large appliances, household items, toys, and more. Shopping at the Garden Patch helps Greenhouse Ministries inspire, give hope, and change lives. The Garden Patch Thrift Shop on Spring Street in downtown Murfreesboro. Hi, this is Peter Demas with Demas's Restaurant. We're excited to announce that our dining rooms are back up and running. We may not be at full capacity and we may not have all of your favorite menu items or the favorite touches that you're used to having. But at the same time, we are excited to be able to serve you. We have brought our servers back. We have retrained them. Our cooks are excited to put the steaks on plates that you can cut with a real knife as opposed to plasticware from your home. And I invite your family to come and join our family back at Demas's Restaurants on Broad Street in Murfreesboro. 
Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website and Alexa or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. The only person who can change your life is you, but you need to know how. Listen to my show, The Del Wamsley Radio Show, where the hype ends and the help begins. Listen to the Dell Wamsley Radio Show this Saturday, 11 to noon, on News Radio WGNS. The Dave Ramsey Show, where debt is dumb, cash is king, and the paid off home mortgage has taken the place of the BMW. Weekdays from 1 to 4 on WGNS. On April the 5th, 2017. 32-year-old Jarrett Parton appeared before General Sessions Judge Barry Tidwell for his preliminary hearing. Parton was represented at the hearing by Nashville attorney Davis Griffin. The state was represented by Assistant District Attorney J. Paul Newman. Following the hearing, Judge Tidwell found there was sufficient probable cause to send the case to the Rutherford County Grand Jury. Judge Tidwell further ordered that Parton be held without bond in the Rutherford County Jail as he awaited the action of the grand jury. It was on July the 6, 2017, that the Rutherford County Grand Jury indicted Jarrett Parton for the murder of Carly Hassett. Following many months of pretrial proceedings, Jarrett Parton's case was set for trial. The trial was scheduled to begin on February the 18th, 2020. But just five days before the trial was to begin, Jarrett Parton decided that he would rather enter a plea of guilty instead of having a jury decide his fate. On February the 13th, 2020, 32-year-old Jarrett Parton appeared in the courtroom of Judge David Bragg. Jarrett Parton was represented by Murfreesboro attorney Scott Kimberly. The state was represented by assistant district attorneys J. Paul Newman, Dana Minor, and Trevor Lynch. Also present in the courtroom was the mother of Carly Hassett. Later that morning, Jarrett Parton pled guilty to unlawful possession of a weapon, and he also pled guilty to second-degree murder for shooting and killing Carly Hassett. Pursuant to the plea agreement, Judge Bragg sentenced Jarrett Parton to serve 12 years for the weapons offense. And for the murder of Carly Hassett, Jarrett Parton was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Jarrett Parton is currently serving his sentence in the Tennessee Department of Corrections. This case highlights the clear and present danger whenever you have clear domestic violence issues coupled with the presence of a firearm. As we end our program today, we thank our producer Nick Coyne. We thank WGNS for providing the airtime. Most of all, we thank you for listening. Our next scheduled broadcast is Friday morning, September the 4th at 8.10 a.m. on your good neighbor station, WGNS. We leave by saying, a safe community is the responsibility of each and every one of us. 
for my co-host Jennings Jones. This is Paul Newman, bidding all of you a safe and blessed day.